0: Good evening. It's good to see you here tonight. It's good to be back with you. Uh, Hated to miss Sunday. I wasn't feeling that bad, but still tested positive and and didn't want to come. But uh, we miss seeing your faces, and uh, we're glad to be here tonight, and hopefully this will be a blessing to you. As Brother Monty mentioned, we're starting the book of Acts tonight. And uh, before we get into the text, I just want to jump to a thought about this particular book, about the book of Acts. And that is that our understanding of every single letter in the New Testament depends on the truths in the book of Acts. And think of it this way, if we don't have the historical record of the facts and application of the gospel in the book of Acts, none of the New Testament makes sense. None of Paul's letters make sense. There's no context to, uh, in which to compare the application that he gives in his letters if you don't have the history behind it. And so not understanding the integration of the Gentiles into the kingdom, not understanding the coming of the kingdom, not understanding the preaching the gospel and the persecution that was going on in Jerusalem and and how that uh, was instrumental in bringing Paul to becoming an apostle of Christ. All those things are so important to understanding all four gospels and every letter that's written afterward. And so this is a very pivotal moment in the New Testament as we're studying the book of Acts. So that ought to grab our attention. We ought to carefully consider with full attention and with diligence the things that we're going to be studying, uh, Lord willing, over the next several weeks. Okay, so we're going to jump right into the text in Acts chapter 1. Acts was written by Luke. Luke was a physician. Uh, Luke was a Greek. Luke was a person uh, of education, a person of means. And both of his letters, that is the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, are written to this person named Theophilus. And there's a little bit of controversy surrounding Theophilus. And and I'm going to go ahead and give you the controversy just so you'll know what it is. The two words that are put together to give the name Theophilus are Theo, which is Theos or God, and Philus, like Philadelphia or Philos, which is friendly or brotherly love. And his name, Theophilus, literally means friend of God. Now here's where the controversy comes up. Some have assessed from that meaning, friend of God, that Theophilus wasn't a real person, that Luke was just writing this to any person who was a friend of God. And so I want to think about that for just a moment. Was Theophilus an actual person or is this just some general letter that Luke writes to say anybody that's a friend of God? So Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 verse 3. Luke says, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account most excellent Theophilus that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So I want you to notice first of all, uh, as Luke writes this, he speaks to this Theophilus as though there was... Former instruction. do you see that? Those things which you were instructed, uh, as though there was instruction in the past. The other thing I want to notice is this phrase right here, "Most excellent Theophilus." That, the, those two words there, most excellent, are only used four times in the New Testament. They're used in Acts 23:6, "Most excellent Governor Felix. And that is the letter that Claudius Lysias wrote for Paul on Paul's behalf to the governor Felix. Acts 24, most noble Felix. And in Acts 26, most noble Festus. You say, well, what's your point? My point is this. Those two words are not used to describe someone's character, but their office or their position. And so when he says most excellent Theophilus, I believe that's a real person a person of nobility that he's writing to, someone that Luke was familiar with and that he's writing to. And he uses this term of honor, most excellent, which was that was the Greek usage or the Roman usage of that term to speak to someone who was in higher honor of you. This also tells us that it's okay for Christians, it's permissible for Christians to refer someone in an office as most noble Uh, because we see Paul doing that, we see Luke doing that as well. And so Theophilus is a real person uh, who Luke wrote both of his letters to, the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. And we're going to go in and out of the end of Luke and Acts 1 as we're going through our study tonight. Okay, now if that's out of the way, let's, let's dig into the text. <clears throat> so he refers to the former account, which is obviously the book of Luke, that he says, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom, that's the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, having been seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So there's a lot to dig out of just these first three verses. And he, he goes all the way from the birth of Christ all the way until he ascended into heaven. And he outlines some of the purposes and plans that Jesus had for his apostles in this. And I want you to notice this because this is where we ended the book of John where Jesus was presenting himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. And we saw those proofs, the evidence that he actually was resurrected from the dead. He wasn't an imposter. This wasn't someone who had just uh, passed out and woken up and come out. He was literally dead. We know he was dead and he was actually alive. And he says he did that during 40 days. Now, it doesn't say every day for 40 days, it doesn't say that, so let's not read into that. In fact, we know that Jesus appeared to them the day he was resurrected and didn't appear to them again until a week later. And so we don't know exactly how many days of those 40 days that Jesus was there in their presence, given in these pr- proofs, but we know what he was doing. And what was he doing? He, through what? The Holy Spirit had given them commandments to the people he chose. And not only did he do that, he spoke to them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's how he starts the letter. Why? Why? Why does he start the letter that way? Because that's how the book of Luke ends, is this very same uh, process. And so now he's going to jump right into basically a continuation. This is sort of the recap of Luke, and he jumps right into this. And being assembled together with them, (coughs) he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So just reading verse 5, you get this inference of what the promise of the Father is, don't you? Because he he makes this reference, okay? He He says, Jesus says, you've heard about this promise from me. And then he refers to him saying that John baptized you with water, but I'm going I'm to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we know what the promise is. But understand, if you're Theophilus, he already knows what this is anyway. Wait for the promise of the Father. And the reason is because that is exactly how the book of Luke ends. And so I want to go back and look at this, and because this is going to help us bring some of these things uh, more into context. Okay, verse 46 of Luke 24, last chapter of Luke, <clears throat> says of Jesus, then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. Now listen, beginning at Jerusalem. where Jesus tell them to wait? Wait at Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes. Why? Because that's where the gospel is going to begin at Jerusalem. And he says, and you are witnesses of these things. Of what things? Of the suffering and resurrection of Christ. So they're witnesses of those things. And then he said this, Behold, I send the promise of my Father. Same language. See that? Wait for the promise of the Father, which you've heard from me. Behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. So here's another hint. Not only is this the coming of the Holy Spirit, Not only is this the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but this baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to result in the apostles having what? Power from on high. So they're to stay at Jerusalem until this occurs. Power from on high through the Holy Spirit, which was a promise that the Father made. So verse 6, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, remember, he starts out this letter by outlining Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom for these 40 days. And what do they ask him when they get to Jerusalem? Or when they're, when they're together now? Is this the time? The time for what? For the kingdom to be restored to Israel. Now, notice, they didn't say, Is this the time that your kingdom will be established? Is this the time that, no, they said, Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Why? Because they don't get it yet. They don't get it yet. They don't quite understand. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father hath put in his own authority. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. You're on a need-to-know basis, and it's not for you to know that. What you've asked me, it's not for you to know. But he didn't leave them with that. He, He does give them a hint. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What is this in reference to? The coming of the kingdom. And so he's giving them a hint about the coming of the kingdom. I'm not going to tell you the exact time. I'm not going to tell you the seasons. That's, that's up to the Father. But know this. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What you need to be concerned about guys is your responsibility and what I have for you to do. That's what you need to be concerned about. So <clears throat> the message of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I didn't unintentionally uh, exclude John here I exclude him for a reason because that's not the focus of John's gospel we've we've talked about that over and over the kingdoms only mentioned five times and only in three verses of the entire gospel of John but we understand from reading Matthew Mark and Luke that the kingdom was emphatic in those books because they're written to Jews because they're looking for the kingdom and what kingdom was it he said well the kingdom of God Right, the kingdom of God. But here's something important to think about. It's not just the kingdom of God. It's the promised and prophesied about kingdom of God. You say, well, I don't know what the difference is. Well, the difference is this. God's always had a kingdom. God's always had dominion. God's always had sovereignty and complete and total rule over all things for all time. But see, there was a kingdom that was going to come into existence. A kingdom that was prophesied about. A kingdom that was promised and that was the kingdom that the book of Acts is saying it's not near, it's here. And that's the difference. Is they were saying before Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and ascension, the kingdom is near. But now the kingdom is here. It's here. So they want to know when's it coming. Do you know Jesus gave them several things regarding the kingdom during his lifetime before his crucifixion and resurrection? Mark chapter 9, verse 1, he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, I want to read this from the ESV because these words right here are a little bit different. He said to them, Truly, I say to you there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, it's not really difference. It's just a clarification. And understand what Jesus is saying. There's going to be some of you who will still be alive when the kingdom comes, and you'll see it, and it will come with what? With power. And they've asked him, when's the kingdom coming? What did he tell them? You're going to receive power. That's the hand he gave them. You're going to receive power. Well, that's exactly what he's told them in, uh, back in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, that the kingdom's going to come in their lifetime, and it's going to come with power. John chapter 18 and verse 36, Jesus gives us another hint about the kingdom. And although the the gospel of John doesn't contain a whole lot about the kingdom, this is a very huge verse if you're going to understand the kingdom of Christ. Because remember, they've accused him uh, to Pilate of trying to overthrow Caesar. What does Jesus say when Pilate says, are you a king? My kingdom, my kingdom, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It's not worldly If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom, listen, is not from here. Where's this kingdom from? From the Father. It's from heaven. It's the spiritual kingdom. Jesus' logic here is very easy to understand. If he had an earthly kingdom, how are earthly kings established? How are earthly kingdoms established? We have to overthrow the existing powers, right? But you know what Jesus told Pontius Pilate? You have no power at all. Except for what my father's given you. You know why? Because Caesar's power has nothing to do with God's power. Nothing. Jesus doesn't have to overthrow Caesar in order to establish a kingdom. But he did. After the kingdom was established, you know what the kingdom of God did? It overthrew the Roman Empire. You know how it did it? Not through soldiers. Not through fighting. Not through physical war. But through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Just like Daniel had prophesied about that the little stone was going to be cut out of the mountain and it was going to devour, it was going to consume all those worldly kingdoms and this kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom and it would never be destroyed. Pilate didn't feel threatened by what Jesus said here. You know why? Because he understood he's not trying to fight because that wasn't how Jesus' kingdom was going to come. Luke chapter 17 and verse 20. So this is Luke that's writing here. He records here, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Let's stop and ask again. What's the context? What are they asking about? When the kingdom of God would come, what are they thinking about? Do you think they're thinking spiritual kingdom? No, this is the Pharisees. What are they thinking about? They had a very physical lens, didn't they? But you know what Jesus said to them? He said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. All right, let's think about these words. How do we observe something? With our eyes, right? That's how we observe something. So what does Jesus mean when he says, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation? He means you won't physically see it come. You won't see it come. And then he says this, nor will they say, here's the kingdom, or see there. See how he says, see there or see there. Why? Because the kingdom of God is within you. Can you see within you? (laughs) No. He said, that's where the kingdom exists. It doesn't exist out here. It doesn't exist on land. It's not landmass. It's not a a physical throne where a, a person reigns over anybody within a certain geographical location. The kingdom is something that exists within a person. And who's the king? Jesus is the king of his spiritual kingdom. And so when we're talking about the promised and the prophesied about kingdom, we're not talking about a worldly kingdom that's going to be set up here on the earth in regard to some massive land. We're talking about Jesus' reign over the inside, over the souls of people, as Lord and king of their life, of their mind and their heart. That's the kingdom that was promised. You know what? They didn't understand. But they would soon. They would soon. Acts chapter 1 verse 9, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, let's not get too literal here. He wasn't taken up out of their sight by water vapor. It's a description of what they saw, most likely a cloud of angels. Uh, We see him coming back with the clouds and and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But Luke had just referred again to the ascension. But you know, this isn't the first time that he mentioned to Theophilus the ascension of Jesus. His gospel, as well as Mark's, are the only of the two that mention Jesus' ascension. So let's look at Luke for a moment. So after the Great Commission, which we read just a moment ago, that remission and repentance should be preached beginning at Jerusalem, it says he led them out as far as Bethany. If you remember where Bethany is, it's east of Jerusalem. It's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so he led them out as far as Bethany. This was the hometown of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, as well as Simon the leper. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them, his apostles. He blessed them. What does it mean he blessed them? He was speaking words of blessing, he was saying blessings toward them. And that he was, it says, it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them. Now listen, and carried up, carried up into heaven. So I don't know, you know, every every movie you've ever seen or every movie I've seen about the ascension of Jesus, he just starts floating, you know, just floating into the air. Well, the way Luke records it is that he was carried up. He was carried up in this cloud. Now listen, and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. What does that mean? It means they fell down to the ground on their face. That's the Greek word proskuneo, which is our word worship, which means to fall prostrate, to fall to the ground. Uh, They're in awe of what they're seeing here. They know, they know Jesus, but they don't know this Jesus. They haven't seen this Jesus. He's glorified before them, and he starts going up into the air. And they worshiped him. And then what? And they return to Jerusalem with great joy. Okay, so he's told them what to do. And they're standing there, and they're watching him. And what do they do? They go back to Jerusalem. They do what he said. And we're continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Okay, now I want to read from Mark. Mark chapter 16, verse 19. This is Mark's uh, record of the ascension. It says, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So Mark adds this detail that we're going to see in the book of Acts. That not only was Jesus ascending up into heaven, but what happened after he ascended to heaven? He sat down at the right hand of God. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. You know what this is? This is the very, very condensed version of the book of Acts right here. That after Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostles went about and they did the work confirming the the word with signs following. How? Through the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that's what that is. That's a very condensed version of the book of Acts. So let's think about this idea of sitting down at the right hand of God. Why is that significant? What's significant in regard to the kingdom? Because him sitting at the right hand of God isn't so much about location as it is a place of authority. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, now listen, and gave gifts to men. What happened when Jesus ascended? He gave gifts to men. What gifts? He's talking about gifts of the Spirit. and You can read Ephesians chapter 4 and, and, we'll, and we'll see that. Now this he ascended, what does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Talking about his burial. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens. Now listen, that he might fill all things. All right, you know how to fill something, right? You fill something with something, right? You don't don't fill something with nothing, you fill something with something. Well, he's talking about the gifts that he gave to men, the Spirit, okay? So let's back up to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I know we're going through this, but we're going to put it all together in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1.20. So again, we're three chapters later here. So earlier in the letter, here's what Paul said. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, where? At his right hand in the heavenly places. Now let's look at everything that that indicates. Far above all what? Principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. What's that sound like? What's that sound like? He's the king. He's above all. He's above everything. He's above any power, any principality, any authority that exists. Jesus is placed above that and everything is beneath him. That's what he means. He put all things under his feet. Like a footstool. We see that several times in the New Testament. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. It doesn't say God's feet are resting on the earth. He's saying everything is beneath him. It's under him. He's above all. He's through all. He's in all. Who's he talking about? Jesus. And he's head over all things. To what? To the church. What's that mean? To the church. Which is his body. Now listen. The fullness of him who fills all in all. What was Jesus doing? He ascended into heaven. He gave gifts to men. He is ascended into the heavens that he might fill all things. What is the fullness of God? It's his body. It's the church. It's what Jesus came to do. It's his scheme of redemption for all mankind. That's the fullness of the purpose of God for all mankind. And you know what Jesus did when he ascended? He became king so that he might fill all things. What was the purpose of the power? What was the purpose of the Spirit? What's the purpose of Acts? See, the power that was given them through the Holy Spirit enabled them to preach the gospel to the conversion of souls. So don't get stuck on, well, this is just history. No, this is more than just history. This is Jesus becoming king and enabling his subjects, those who he chose, to be empowered so that they could do the work as earthen vessels on behalf of God. The greater work that he told them they would do in the book of John. That's what Acts is. It's that greater work that he was talking about. And how, did that, how was it accomplished? What had to happen first? He had to ascend. And what happened when he ascended? See, Jesus' ascension is evidence of his dominion. It's evidence. Because he didn't just ascend, he, was, he ascended and he sat down at the right hand of God. And Jesus' dominion is evidence of what? His kingdom. Notice the word dumb or the D-O-M there. What does that mean? What does kingdom mean? It means a king has dominion. So here's my question. Is Jesus king or is he not king? Is his kingdom here? Has it come or is it somewhere off in the future? Because I tell you, everywhere you read in scripture, after Jesus' ascension talks about him being king and having authority now. Not sometime in the distant future. Not about some land mass, but he is above all now. He has dominion. And for Jesus to have given gifts to men, when was that to occur? After he became king. We just read that in the text. What happened? He ascended so he could give gifts to men. Sat down at the right hand of God so he could give gifts to men. You know what that means? It means the promised kingdom and Christ's reign is already present. It's here now. It was to come in their lifetime. It was to come after they received power. They received power in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. The kingdom is here. It's not a physical kingdom. It's not going to happen over in physical Israel. Jesus is not going to come sit on a physical throne. He's king right now. And Jesus said himself, my kingdom is not of this world. And it doesn't come with observation. It's within you. He is king. Notice that that was the message that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 when he preached the first gospel sermon. As he said, therefore being a prophet, talking about David, and saying, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. You know what that means? He made a promise to him, to David. That of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his what? On a chair? On a couch? No. On a throne? What do you do on a throne? You reign. Well, are you sure? Well, let's look at verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Now listen to verse 33. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. Not just lifted, but exalted to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that's talking about them receiving the Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, What? The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What did God say to the Son? What did the Father say to the Son? Sit at my right hand and reign, and I'm going to put everything beneath you. Everything beneath you. What was he saying? He's king. You know what he says in the next verse? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus, who you crucified, God hath made both Lord and Christ. Not just Christ, but Lord. What's that word mean? Lord, ruler, authority, control, dominion, power. That's what it means. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. Now, this is an interesting thing. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. You say, well, hold on just a minute. Didn't we just read that he was going to have him sit at his right hand and make his enemies his footstool? That's right. What's the last enemy? So here's what it says. There's going to come a day, the end, that is the end of the world, the end of time. When Jesus is going to deliver the kingdom back to what? God the Father. Why does he say God the Father? Why didn't he just say God? Because he's making a distinction. And that distinction also tells you this. Jesus is also God. There's a reason why he says God the Father. So there'll be no confusion. God the Father. And what's going to happen? He must reign till when? Till the last enemy is destroyed. And what's the last enemy? Death. The resurrection. Now listen to verse 27. This is very important. For he has put all things under his feet. You know what the word all means? It means everything. But here's a clarification that Paul makes. When he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. You know what that means? It means he didn't put himself under Jesus. The Father is the exception to that. When he says all things, he means all things except the Father. The Father's not subject to Jesus. That's what he means by that. He who gave the authority did not put himself under he who he gave authority to. Acts chapter 1 verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. And also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. You know what they're saying? He's coming back. (laughs) Why, Why are you standing looking up into heaven? He's coming back. Well, isn't that an odd thing to say to these men? Like like they'd seen an ascension before. You know, Jesus often did this with his disciples. They would get their attention stuck on something. He'd say, hey guys, focus. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but he'd say, no, no, think about your responsibility. Don't think about that. We saw that with Peter and John last week, didn't we? What about this guy? No, Peter, you worry about Peter. He's coming back. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, listen, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Who is that? It's God the Father. And they brought Him, that's this Son of Man, before the Father, the Ancient of Days. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed again when was that to happen after jesus ascended to the heaven he sat down at the right hand of god he was given dominion and a kingdom and everything was subjected to him okay now let's jump back into acts chapter one it says then they returned to jerusalem from the mount called olivet or the mount of olives which is near jerusalem a sabbath's day journey and if you want to know how far that is just ask john because he made that walk not too long ago they walked from the mount of olives to jerusalem he said it's not that far it's not that far from there to the temple. So a Sabbath day journey. They, they made up all these different regulations about the Sabbath, how far a person could walk. And there was a distance, and that's what he's referring to is that particular distance. Not very far. And when they had entered, they went up into an upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. Do you notice there's a missing name here? It's Judas Iscariot. So there's 11 apostles, okay? These all continued, these 11, with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So it says with the women. Well, who are those women? Well, most likely that's Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus obviously probably uh, Salome which we read about that was around the the crucifixion of Jesus so it was these women that were there that were disciples of Jesus he just says the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers the brothers of who? the brothers of Jesus who were at one time not believers but it's kind of hard to argue with the fact that your brother's risen from the dead isn't it? so uh, some of them End up being pillars of the church. And we actually see at the council later in Acts chapter 15, when they have the council at Jerusalem about the Gentiles, who's there? James, the brother of Jesus. And so he's obviously a pillar in the church there. So it says, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. And I'll tell you, the prominent figures of the book of Acts are Peter and Paul. They're the prominent figures in this book. Most of the things we read about are there ministry. And it's not that the other guys didn't do things. It's that that's what God chose to inspire Luke to write about was Peter and Paul. So in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, although altogether the number of names was about 120. That's a lot of people in a room. And said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. What? That's right. There are prophecies in the Psalms about Judas's betrayal, and not just about him being a friend that betrayed Jesus. Specific prophecies regarding Judas's fall and what would happen, what the subsequent events would be after Judas's fall. And so that's what Peter mentions here. For he was numbered with us and obtained part in this ministry. Okay? End quote. End quote. So Peter says this. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now Luke gives us some information here. This is Luke, not Peter, but Luke writing here details about Judas and here's what he says. Now this man, talking about Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. You say, "What? That's not what it says in the Gospels. It says he hanged himself. That's right. he hanged himself. He said, well, what's going on here? So here's the explanation that I, that most scholars have given, and I tend to agree with them that they let him hang up there for a while. And when he finally came down, he came down and he burst open. I know that sounds terrible. That's what he tells us about and it was a, it was a terrible death. He was a betrayer. All his entrails gushed out, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language acheldema. That is the field of blood. So, a couple things. Uh, does it say that Judas was hung in that field? No, it doesn't. Does it say they called it the field of blood because Judas's entrails gushed out? No, it doesn't say that either. It, it kind of reads that way. But the reason they called it the field of blood was because it was purchased with the price of blood, which we see in the other Gospels. That's the reason they, they, they called it that, the field of blood. It was the price of blood, talking about Jesus' blood. Akeldama, which is a Syrio, a Syriac uh, translation of the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Now we're back into the quote of Peter. So this is Luke's kind of sidebar, okay? Here's what Peter says. He continues by saying this. He was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Understand that. Judas was a part of their ministry. Was he a thief? Yes. Was he stealing money out of the treasury? Yes. But you know what else he was doing? Out preaching the kingdom working alongside the apostles, and working alongside them in such a way that when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, that the crowd didn't turn around and go, it's probably Judas. (laughs) I bet it's him. They had no clue. You know what that tells us? He was pretty sneaky. He was pretty sneaky. But he was a part of their work. And he said, it's written in the book of Psalms. This is the David prophecy that he's referring to. Let his dwelling place be desolate. You know what that means? That place that he took in the twelve, let it be unoccupied. And let no one live in it and let another take his office. So it was prophesied that Judas would fall and someone else would fulfill their role as an apostle in his place. And so that's what the rest of this chapter is about. So we're we're going to go through it rather quickly. Not, Not a lot of deep stuff that we have to really dive into super deep. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day, when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So here's the thing. There's 120 people, right? 120. Peter stands up and says, okay, everybody knows what happened to Judas. And, And that was a matter of prophecy, and now he's not an apostle, but we need somebody to fill his office. And he says, but here's the deal. The person that fills that office... It's going to be a small group because it's got to be somebody that's been with us since the baptism of John all the way to his resurrection. Not, that wasn't all the, all the disciples. Okay, So it was somebody that had been with them and witnessed the same things they'd witnessed and been with them the entire time. And so what did they do? They proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. So two. And then they prayed and said, Oh Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. That's pretty odd, right? And I mean, we don't make decisions like that. We don't pray and flip a coin. But that's what they did. That was something they were accustomed to doing under the Mosaic law. And, and I believe that this isn't some luck deal here. This, they, that God is truly with them. He's blessing them at this point and showing which of the two that he desires. And they put that in the hands of God and they trusted him to, to make that decision. And they made, he made the decision. And so they chose Matthias. And he became one of the twelve. Now, what did that also mean? It means he was going to die for Jesus. That's what it meant. It's, it's not just that, hey, now you get to be an apostle. No, that also means you're going to go out... You're going to leave your home, you're going to go preach the gospel, and you're going to die for Jesus. So we see, we don't hear a lot about Matthias. We don't hear anything about him, in fact. Right? You don't hear about his ministry. You don't hear about Andrew's ministry. You don't hear about a lot of these people's ministry. But they had a ministry. They played their part. In doing what? In laying the foundation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what they did. They went out and they expanded the borders of the kingdom to include not just Jew, but Jew and Gentile. Not just white Right? That's what we learn from the book of Acts. This is a gospel for all races, for all skin colors, for all nations, for poor and rich. It's for everybody. And I'll tell you what we learn in the book of Acts is that the same way that you're saved is the same way everybody else is saved. And there's no exception to that. Because the most important thing that we see in the book of Acts is how is one saved? Because that's the work Jesus came to accomplish salvation. So I hope you'll be there for every study of the book of Acts. Uh, If there's a gospel subject tonight, we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ at this time. If you're not a Christian and you know how to become a Christian, we want to encourage you to do that at this time, and that's why we have this invitation. If you are a Christian and you need anything from Jesus Christ, he is at the right hand of God, not just as king, but also as intercessor and mediator, and we'll go to him on your behalf if you have a need tonight. Come have a seat as we stand and we sing.